Well, hello from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Uh, today's webinar, uh, like all of the programs in this series, touches on timeless ancient mysteries, collectively known as mysticism, uh, shamanism. All religions have mystical traditions. In Christianity, it's the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons that actually trace themselves to pre-Christian times, but are nevertheless Judeo-Christian in nature. Um, in Judaism, of course, the Kabbalists um, tend to be the, uh, the mystics, those who study the Kabbalah and the, the Zohar, or the Book of Splendors. In Islam, the mystics are the Sufis, and sometimes known by the whirling dervishes, um, but that's actually just one tradition. That would be the Medlevi tradition begun by Rumi in the 13th century or so, and there are other Sufis, and uh, even Sufi with a small s is often used to refer to any mystic, anybody seeking a personal path to their source, uh, a heartfelt path, really what that's about. And so um, those are the mystical traditions for the uh, for the the big three in the West: uh, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, the Eastern religions tend to be mystical by their own nature: uh, Buddhism, uh, Taoism, in particular. Uh, Hinduism has a mystical side, and and certainly shamanism in the indigenous uh, peoples of the world. You have this collective tradition of shamanism, again, using altered states to attain an expanded level of awareness. To, and this speaks to our topic today, to turn away from the appearance of things to find the substance. And that is our topic today, the appearance of things, as opposed to the substantial. Now, certainly in the West, uh, and by that I mean Europe and America, these two concepts are conflated. They're mixed and confused. We seek the substantial in the way things appear to us. Um, we have whole corporations whose job it is to uh, do branding or imaging to create a reputation. Um, this is not substantial, right? It's the appearance of things. This is where you need to separate the two um, to really find substance. Uh, I think other administrations before Bush and Cheney eight years ago had similar agencies, but Bush and Cheney have taken the idea of image building and branding to a whole new level. Uh, they have had an office of perception management. If you think about this, it's a very uh, <laughs> Orwellian concept. The office of perception management. Now, clearly, that's not about truth. That's not about reality. That's about manipulating, or if you will, managing perception, how people look at it. And out of that comes... Bush Cheney uh, doublespeak or newspeak, as Orwell called it in 
1984, this uh, doublespeak. Um, and, you know, lots of media is on board with this as well. Particular, <laughs> I was flipping through the channels on the television the other day, and I found the Fox Reality Channel. And the funny thing about the Fox Reality Channel is that nothing on it is real, but it appears to be. Uh, my wife and I uh, started watching Gordon Ramsay, the uh, sort of the Simon Cowell of British television chefs and cooks, and. Uh, turned out the whole thing's a put-on. You know, he's got a restaurant that's a TV studio, and the people that come into the restaurant uh, are all shills that they got from advertising on Craigslist or in Variety magazine. And You have to watch it a few times, even if you're media savvy, to figure out the, the, reali the reality channel is everything but reality. We have that problem in the West, okay? Uh, we are very easily seduced and influenced by the appearance of things, believing that there's no difference between what the five physical senses that we're gifted with reveal to us about a thing, an object, or a circumstance, or a situation, as if we can find anything substantial or meaningful in the surface appearance in just what our senses tell us. And the discussion today is my attempt to shake us loose as often as possible, to take a second look and to go deeper beyond the appearance of an object, of a situation, of a relationship or a circumstance, and to go more deeply into it to find what is truly substantial beyond the surface appearance of things and to really get into it and find the substantial, interestingly, is often a process of letting go and taking a step back. The detachment or the mindfulness that is central to Eastern philosophy and the mysticism of the East is something that we have to learn in the West. Because uh, we're suckers for the appearance of things, you know, a nice shiny new object. Well, that's why, you know, the Chinese put lead, lead in the paint to make it shiny and glossy because people love that stuff, especially Westerners. We love the glitzy and the shiny stuff and how does it look and we're often not interested in how it works. You know, what's under the hood? Well, <laughs> well What's going on where the rubber meets the road? I don't know, but doesn't it look sweet in the driveway? And whatever it is, our, our microwaves, few of us understand what's going on inside a microwave. Don't really want to know, lots of us. Or um, a computer or, my God, just a television for that matter. Uh, how, how do these things work and why should we care? What's important about it? But even in relationships, how many of our relationships are based on just a shallow appearance, a small talk? Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have shallow relationships. It would be bad only if all of our relationships were shallow, if uh, we had no sense that from time out of mind, really intelligent women and men in all cultures and all societies 
have known not to trust their physical senses, that um, while they may be accurate as far as they go, uh, that's the point. They don't reveal everything. There are big bits of information about things, objects, and relationships, and circumstances, and events that uh, are not apparent to the five physical senses and, and require the intelligence of the mental nature and maybe even more importantly the wisdom of the heart to really find what's substantial and meaningful and what lasts. You know, I think a good place to begin to talk about the difference between the appearance of things and the substantial is uh, what the ancient Greeks, especially since we're in the West here. Most of us, we may have people listening on the other side of the world, but broadcasting here from uh, doing our webinar in Maui and speaking mostly to, to people in the United States, uh, we need a lot of help in this area. And uh, the ancient Greeks in our Western civilization forming the fundamental philosophies understood what we have forgotten uh, about this idea of the substance being more than the appearance. One of the famous quotes along these lines is from Heraclitus, or sometimes pronounced Heraclitus, and he said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. Well, of course, it's not the same river, you know, one second later, because the water is moving, and so, you know, a school child would understand what's being said with that simple aphorism, nobody ever steps in the same river twice. Well, sort of as time flows over us in the same way, and as we move about in space, we're never in the same situation twice. Uh, in terms of the physical world now, I know metaphysically we can argue that there is no place and there is no time. Certainly time and space are the four dimensions of physical existence. But that physical existence has has change as part of it, uh, whereas spirit is in a contradictory way. Well, I don't want to say that. It's not in a very different way, in a more inclusive way. Uh, spirit has no time and no space. Spirit is said to be everywhere equally present. In other words, it's infinite, and it's also eternal. Eternity is not a big basket of time, a whole lot of time. Uh, eternity is an instant that just never ends. It's a pulse that continues on. It's an existence that transcends the in-breath and the out-breath. And uh, again, is both eternal in terms of time and infinite in terms of being everywhere equally present. But that doesn't, that's not even limited to everywhere in space, but emanating from beyond uh, space and time. So I think we all have a sense of, of the basics of that. And again, the ancient Greeks and, and other cultures around the world, if you look at the the ageless wisdom and the ancient writings, you'll see that they had an awareness that that all things must pass. Remember, as George Harrison began to study Eastern mysticism, he wrote an album entitled, was it a song, All Things Must Pass? 
uh, everything is uh, changing and uh, evolving and unfolding and part of that creative cycle is the autumn or the winter and the death and the destruction in the west we have uh, sometimes uh, challenged our understanding by using the wrong conventions we talk about life and death for example when we should be talking about the cycle of birth and death within life right this is a good one for you to ponder uh, if you ever catch yourself or hear somebody else saying life and death, uh, correct them. Say, no, it's not life and death. Within life, there is birth and death. There is birth and living and death. But you can't have rebirth without death. Uh, this is represented in uh, Hindu philosophy by the goddess Kali. And she is often described as the destroyer. Uh, Kali, but she's less the destroyer than she is the dissolver. So that's a, a better translation, perhaps, of what she represents. And she is just the leaf that dies, or the fruit that becomes overripe, falls off the tree, and then dissolves back into the earth, where it can be taken up by the plant, the tree, whatever, and used again and again and again. So you can't have birth without death. They're both integral parts of life. Hence, we have the cycles of life. But life itself, you see, being this permanent thing, and this gave birth to the understanding of reincarnation. And even in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. The cycles of life, right, so that you don't have a beginning and an end except in terms of appearance. But in terms of substance, uh, things are eternal and infinite, it would be arguable. Um, again, the idea that we would invest so much of our time and energy into the acquisition of things that are changing, uh, things that are always in decay, right? Uh, I know people don't like to think about um, spending 30 years to buy a house that uh, 60 years later is going to be torn down, but it's true. Uh, most of most of the houses we live in now will, within 80 years or so, be torn down and replaced. And so it is with we're watching our infrastructure now. In the United States, those roads and bridges and and uh, pipelines and such that we thought would last forever are in decay. Hey, whoever thought <laughs> we'd have to replace those things, but we do. So I'd like at the top here, as we introduce these concepts and and talk about ways to go beyond the appearance, to just even at the beginning remember, well, that's the way it appears, right? But I'm an intelligent person, I'm a conscious, awake person, and I'd like to go beyond the appearance of things to find something that lasts, something that is not in decay, something that is eternal and maybe even infinite. And of course, to the mystic, uh, I can give away the ending at the beginning, because you already know, most people listening here, that the only thing that is true in 
in that regard. The only thing that exists, that lasts, that cannot be destroyed, that, that how did Christ say it? Store your riches in heaven and not on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. I can only paraphrase that. But you get the energy here. You get the idea that everything here on earth, if that's what you invest in, you're investing in stuff that doesn't last. Right? It's all going to decay. That nice new car that, you know, spend a lot of money on that car and you get it home and you're going to wash it every week and you're going to wax it once a month and, boy, this car, I'm going to really take care of it. Well, you got to do more than replace the wiper blades and the tires. you got to do more than change the oil and put gas in it. You have to repair it. It's in decay. And uh, somebody's going to push a shopping cart into it. And then hopefully nobody will get hurt, but it's likely there will be a little fender bender along the way. And even if all of that is avoided, and you, like Jay Leno, have a warehouse of old cars or a museum of old cars, they need to be maintained because they're in decay. And the vast majority, of, again, will end up in the scrap heap. And for the last 25 or 30 years, we've had a growing consciousness about recycling and reusing, all of which is good, but we have to honor the bigger picture here. Nothing lasts in the physical realm of time and space. Nothing is real. It's all in decay. You can't own anything. It's only on loan from the universe. Stop holding on. Let go. There will be a lot less pain in losing things if you stop holding on in the first place. Ironically, what we're most afraid of losing is the one thing that does last, and that's love. Truth and love are often hyphenated in mystical traditions that the only truth is love, and love is the only truth. Uh, as Blavatsky said, the founder of Theosophy, um, Madame Blavatsky said, there is no religion higher than truth. Well, that's also saying there is no religion above love, or that love is the only religion, or that love is the only truth. The problem we have here is that the word love, to most people, is an emotion, that love is consciousness or awareness, and to be aware of love, <laughs> you know, or to love being aware is part of the, the same existence, which is eternal and is infinite, love being, or love truth being everywhere uh, equally present and also existing throughout out time. Love has a rhythm. Love has many rhythms. Love has infinite rhythms and frequencies to it, as does uh, truth. You talk about it in either way. Um, but there's no time to it. The problem we have with time, and we could focus on time and, and the illusion of time in another program, but the problem that we get into is just we impose it over a number line. If you just look at a clock and watch the hands go around and around, you can see the rhythm twice a day. That clock completes the cycle 
All right, so your rhythm is twice a day, and then you can break that into hours and minutes and seconds. It's a rhythm. But to stretch it out over a line, as if a number line, you know, like you have zero in the middle and the negative number is going off to the left is the past, and the positive number is going out into the future is to the right of the zero, that's where we get into the problem. That That's where we get confused, as if the past exists. Uh, or the future somehow exists. And that's where all our fear is, by the way. Everything you're afraid of, unless you're afraid right now, but if you take a breath and relax and look around, you're probably very, very safe. That means that 99.99% of your fears and anxieties and stresses are not real. They don't exist. They're, they're nightmares from the past, these phantasms, or fears of the future, none of which is real. So, as the Course in Miracles says so so concisely, all fear is a nightmare. <laughs> you know, it, it's, fear has value. It, it shows you where you're ignorant. It shows you where there's an opportunity for you to learn something that you don't know, something that does last, the truth, uh, something that is immutable, which is love at the highest frequency. That's the only reality there is. Oh, do another program on time and space and the illusions of time and space. Suffice to say, the appearance of things, what most people think of as reality, how it looks, how it sounds, how it tastes. Look, I can reach out and touch it. It must be real. But what you're seeing and hearing and tasting and smelling and touching is in decay. It's not real. Nothing lasts. In the physical realm, it's all in decay. Uh, a physicist would be happy to remind you right off the bat of the law of entropy. I think we mentioned it a week or two ago in a different context, how all systems run out of energy. They lose steam. Uh, you can't really use the energy, but it degrades to heat. Everything moves from order to chaos. Fortunately, there is a spiritual side of the bar magnet where order comes out of chaos. Uh, and again, that's consciousness, that's love, that's truth, and that's the eternal and infinite end of things. But as, as spirit extends itself into the physical, it is by its very nature insubstantial or unsubstantial and merely an appearance of things. Okay. Let me demonstrate this with a uh, a story I saw going around the internet uh recently and like most internet stories it's probably been there a long time. I came across this in a PowerPoint presentation that somebody had forwarded to me and it was accompanied by uh nice photos and it was actually quite a nice story. It's a story about a uh an old wise fella or woman could be either I suppose but somebody who's been around the block a few times somebody who's lived and acquired some wisdom gotten the bigger picture and simplified things a bit and uh, has a bunch of young people stopping by on a cold day and offers them hot chocolate and they say, oh, yes, we'd all love some hot chocolate. So 
granddad or grandma disappears into the kitchen and they come back soon with a big pot of hot chocolate and uh, a bunch of cups on a plate. And no two cups are alike. They're all different. Some are newer than others and, you know, round coffee cups. Some are bigger and deeper. They're like coffee mugs. And again, they're all a little different. Some are promotional. Some are chipped. Some are done through the dishwasher so many times that the the uh, the, the paint is uh, worn off and so on. And so, as the story goes, the people very carefully choose which mug they're going to have their coffee in. You know, nobody wants the old mug or the chipped coffee cup. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them, but most of the young people that want the hot chocolate are reaching for a nice mug for the appearance of things, and and they leave on the on the tray the mugs that are the least new, the oldest, and most likely to be chipped or cracked. And so the old man or the old woman serves the hot chocolate. Everybody gets their hot chocolate, and they're sipping the hot chocolate, and it's exi- boy, it really hits the spot. It's just what everybody wants on a chilly day. And then grandma or granddad begin to talk about the chocolate and how delicious the chocolate is and how soothing, how it really hits the spot because it's nice and warm and it's chocolatey and it's sweet, of course, and everybody loves hot chocolate on a cold day. And he then goes on, or she goes on, to talk about how carefully they had chosen the mug as if it mattered. And that's the point in the story where you sort of sit back you're rocked back on your heels if you're standing or you just slow down or wait a minute why did we put so much effort why did we care at all maybe you would argue well I didn't put that much effort into it but why did you care at all about the container when it was the hot chocolate that you were really interested in I mean you can't scoop the hot chocolate with your hands, it's too hot. Your hands are sort of leaky anyway. We've got to have some vessel, some container. But does the appearance of the container add anything to the experience of enjoying the hot chocolate? And I thought, well, that's a nice story to demonstrate the ageless wisdom of substance versus the appearance of things especially in a country, the United States, in a society or a Western culture where appearance is so distorted and overstated, right? And out of this even can come a false sense of power because the appearance of things leads to a sense of needing to control the stimulus through force or some sort of threat, uh, leverage, a moneyed buyout. We can see now more than ever in 2009 and what we've come out of in the last eight years of robber baron politics. What, what happens when we get drunk or intoxicated on the appearance of things? We want more things. Right? We want a rock's oil. 
And so we start a war against a nation that has no military at all. You never hear this discussed. Iraq had no military when we went in. It was a shameful invasion, as was our invasion of Panama and Grenada, uh, and, and so often in Central and South America, Nicaragua and El Salvador and, and Guatemala in the 1950s. You know, we pick on these little defenseless nations, and then we're all supposed to be proud of winning a war when there's no military to even fight back. That's Iraq in a nutshell. Uh, Iran has a military. They'll engage us. They'll be happy to engage us. But Iraq's military was largely destroyed in that 10-year war with Iran. And remember, the United States was arming both sides. The whole Iran-Contra uh, debacle in the Reagan administration uh, where we were trading weapons for hostages we were selling weapons to Saddam Hussein at the same time the reason the arguments about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction were received by so many people as credible was that as I heard somebody say once, I think it was Ted Koppel said, well, we know they have the weapons of mass destruction because we still have the receipts. Reagan sold them. You know, those weapons he used against the Kurds, who are not really his own people. He got those from Ronald Reagan, and Donald Rumsfeld sold them. You'll find a picture on my website of Donald Rumsfeld and Saddam Hussein laughing and shaking hands. That never gets discussed. And I don't want to go into that in any depth at this point. I'm just pointing out that war and violence and corruption goes hand in hand with our intoxication around the appearance of things. Whereas if we were dedicated to finding what is substantial, what is real, what lasts, what really lasts at the end of the day, what is good and true and beautiful, right? That we would drop the violence. Maybe, maybe you don't see the connection here, but I would just ask you to consider it. That violence and war and so much of the corruption and the injustice in the world is the direct result of becoming drunk or at least distracted by the appearance of reality, by what our five physical senses tell us, and no further, as if we have no other sense. Well, we do. We have, at the very least, a sixth sense, <laughs> which is intuition, and then there are other senses, so-called common sense, which is not nearly as common as it once was as people get more and more stressed and more and more caught up in the appearance of things they seem to have less common sense and of course logic we could be reasonable all right so common sense is i think a combination of logic or reasoning and intuition the so-called sixth sense so we have these mental and emotional faculties that go beyond sense and sensation, but we don't like to use them. 
We, we would rather just be caught up in the appearance of things. And even though, as little kids, we begin to learn through our disappointments that things are not what they appear to be, right? You've got to have that toy or that gadget on television as a little kid, and then mom and dad finally concede and they give it to you, and it ain't all that. Once you get it out of the box, it just isn't what it appeared to be. And yet we become teenagers and get hooked on it. We've got to have the latest gadgets. And then as adults, we're still hooked on it, right? And again, we we do live in the world. Remember that Sufi saying about living in the world but not of the world, right? Again, the Christ, uh, the admonition of uh, Jesus the Christ about storing your riches in heaven and not on earth because that's where things last. So what does that mean to store things in heaven? Well, heaven is within. It's, it's again, it's love. It's love truth. It's love truth consciousness everywhere equally present, infinite, but also eternal, undying, never-ending. And when in our lives we long for something real, we want something that lasts, that's where we have to turn. We have to turn within. We have to sometimes even close our eyes to see what's real. Because you open your eye, you think you're seeing something real, but eyes simply perceive light reflecting off what's real. And so it is with the other senses. And you say, well, wait a minute, what about the sense of touch? What about uh, tactile? I can put my hands on it. I can get a grip. I can hold it in my hands. Wouldn't that prove that something is real? No. Not if it's in decay. As Heraclitus said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. That thing that you're holding, even if it's made out of stainless steel or titanium, is in decay. It's not going to last, you see. And so from time out of mind, in all cultures around the world, there has been this, I'm afraid, a rather esoteric understanding of the substance of things but we are in this day and age especially in the western part of the world Europe and America so confused by I mean technology high tech stuff is impressive the fact that we have computers and the internet and, and cell phones and you know these gadgets, these iTouch phones now that are a telephone and a camera and a music player and you can surf the internet all on this one little device that fits in your shirt pocket and it could even be smaller than that except your fingers wouldn't be able to work it. I mean, it's just so flashy and so impressive that we forget that that's just the appearance. What am I going to use this internet, computer, telephone, music player for, right? I, I can surf the internet. Great. Why? Well, to be distracted from my life. Really? Could you use it to put 
meaning into your life? There's another good word. Uh, could you find something substantial? Why? The great question that too few of us ask. Little kids ask, and then we're discouraged or dissuaded from, at some point, from asking further. Right? Why is the sky blue? so many other questions that we once asked as little kids, we wondered about you know, you're a great philosopher until you're about 11 or 12, then we start thinking about relationships and sexuality and jobs and money and buying stuff and we lose our passion we, for, for, for understanding why for seeking the real substance we want the hot chocolate but we're all hung up on the cup you see I just want decent transportation, but now I'm concerned about what will people think about the car I drive, what kind of impression do I, I just want clothes to be somewhat modest and warm on a cold day, but no, we're told clothes make the man and the woman has to wear a power suit to work and, you know, money in the bank and the kind of house you live in, the country club you belong to. Uh, it just goes on and on, and we wonder why we're not happy, why our lives don't work. This is why I say we're intoxicated or drunk on the appearance of things. And so the appeal here is to recognize that any time you're relying on the physical senses alone, you have been distracted from truth from reality, that in order to find something that lasts, that is eternal and infinite, that is true love, consciousness, you really need to turn away from physical sense and sensation. Not at all times, obviously, or we could not exist in the world, but to spend even ten minutes once a day or a half an hour once a day in contemplation, if not formal meditation, just put your chair in front of the window and stare outside and call it a meditation, right? If what you're looking at or what you're experiencing with the physical senses is fixed and unchanging, if it is very low stimulus, that's almost the same as turning away. I've hooked many people up to simple biofeedback devices in my office and had them close their eyes and do a meditation exercise that I was facilitating for them. And you'd hear the beep of the biofeedback machine go, beep, 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 as they get more relaxed and the brain waves get slower, as they turn away from the appearance of things. And then the Emotional nature becomes calm, and the mental nature becomes quiet. People say, I can't meditate, I, have, I can't quiet my mind. You don't quiet the mind and calm the heart in order to meditate. You practice meditation, introspection, contemplation, reflection, whatever you want to call it, in order to quiet the mind and calm the heart. you got to get the horse in front of the cart here. <laughs> it's a practice. Okay. And that's when the not-so-obvious substance of things begins to dawn 
silence. I found a quote that I put in the newsletter this week by Henry David Thoreau, and I thought I'd read all of Thoreau. I guess I have. I I guess I overlooked or forgot about this one, and it, it's in the newsletter. I'm sure you saw it about remaining awake, not by a mechanical means, not by alarm clocks or or staying busy to be awake, not that kind of awake. He's he's talking about an inner awakeness, an inner awareness that transcends the mere appearance of things through our physical senses and sensations. And he calls it the expectation of the dawn. To be awake, to keep yourself awake, to become even more awake and aware and alert by what Thoreau calls an infinite expectation of the dawn. And again, a rich allegory. He doesn't just mean the sun coming up as the planet Earth rotates in that direction. He's talking about the inner light, the sun dawning in your mind of intuition, of illumination, of awareness, of uh, sometimes it's just the light bulb pops on, sometimes we're thunderstruck, but sometimes it's just a gradual dawning of truth, of substance, that lifts us above the appearance of things and we begin to see the bigger picture. And that, that's another way to know the difference between appearance and substance is appearance, things, things appear to be very separate and distinct. Conceptual understanding, the truth of things, that which is substantial, however, is conceptual in nature. It's, a, it's an ever bigger picture of harmony, if not unity, of the way things work together. Uh, I just did a seminar with Steve in Honolulu for teacher trainers, and my primary appeal to them was to train teachers to teach students to think conceptually as well as deductively. And in order to do that, they have to be treated with dignity and respect. They have to be honored as, as if all students have some intelligence and some natural gifts to create a classroom environment where children can wonder and ask questions and be interested, where there's no stigma about not knowing something, right? Where not knowing is honored. And people can know, students can learn to understand not merely by the acquisition of data and, and more details and information, which would be the appearance of things, but to the overarching concepts and the greater principles, uh, gestalt in German, the whole enchilada in California, the, the bigger picture. And while these dawnings, this experience of light uh, being shown in the darkness inside our brains often happens spontaneously, the idea of being able on demand to turn away from the appearance or look beyond the appearance of things to 
to that which is truly substantial and much more inclusive and overarching really requires access to an altered state. And that means fixing your attention, if not closing your eyes, and essentially replacing physical sense and sensation with the inner corollaries, the metaphysical, for every physical sense that, that puts you in touch with the appearance of things, there is a corollary. There is an inner transcendental sense that added together can reveal the substance, the eternal and infinite truth of things. So we rely mostly on our eyeballs to see light. But if you close your eyes, you can imagine seeing, visualizing, guided imagery. This would be the corollary for seeing with your eyes open. Close your eyes and you've still got vision, but it's the mind's eye. Right? It's your ability to imagine not only what you've seen with your eyes, but things that have not yet been seen in the way that, you know, the Wright brothers imagined flying and could see that happening, or Edison could see himself and imagine in his mind's eye inventing uh, the light bulb, the movie projector, the phonograph, and uh, whatever else, you see. And in an auditory sense, our ability to hear through our ears the frequencies of air molecules rattling together as it impacts on the inner ear and, and vibrates those bones in the middle ear and is picked up by the, the nerves and carried to the nearby brain where they are interpreted as sound. I mean, that's pretty miraculous. Well, by closing your eyes and imagining yourself visualizing, you can also imagine hearing the sounds and the feeling that you're making it up is exactly the right feeling, so it's understandable if you don't think that this would be the way to truth. You would think, wait, I've got to open my eyes to see the truth. But ironically, it's just the opposite. You've got to close your eyes to recognize the substantial. And so for each of the five senses, you can imagine seeing, you can imagine hearing. When we talk about visualization or guided imagery, it's really sensory imagination. To imagine visualizing and seeing on the inside of your forehead. To imagine hearing the sounds associated with this particular image. To imagine without physically moving at all that you read it, reach out and touch something. Again, it seems backwards to suggest this is where we would find reality, capital R, or substance that is eternal and infinite. But that's that's my argument to you today. That's my challenge to you. I'm not telling you the way it is. I'm revealing to you ancient wisdom and hoping that you will consider the possibility that there might be something to this. And of course you could imagine tasting and smelling as well. There's that great exercise. In fact, we did it in Honolulu at the seminar for the teacher trainers where we had them imagine eating the lemon. 
and just a few minutes of narrating. Uh, you've got this lemon, imagine floating in the black background, this beautiful bright yellow lemon, and we, we narrate for a couple of minutes, bringing the lemon closer and touching it and feeling the texture and smelling it, holding it up to your nose, and then you put it on a cutting board and slice it with, I'm salivating even now, just... <laughs> And then you slice it, and then you bring it up to your nose, and you smell it, and you squeeze the juice, and it squirts in your eye, and then you take a big bite of the lemon. You know, and, and, and the point is that there is a reality here that causes the body to pucker and salivate, you see. And that's the subconscious. That's 90 to 95% of who we are is imagination. And when people say to me, oh, it's just your imagination, you know, I'm like blown away by that. Um, just your imagination. I mean, against the backdrop of nature, what exists in the world that we did not first imagine? And, and who is it that's degrading our imagination? And, and when somebody says, oh, I just can't imagine that, I, I point out, well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why you don't have what you want, because you haven't imagined it yet. Or you tried to imagine it, but you were distracted, because while you were imagining some desired outcome, attaining a goal or creating some success in your life, you were distracted by all the other things you were doing at the same time, driving the car, washing the dishes, running the vacuum, being at work, whatever. But to take a breath and close your eyes, turn away from the distractions of what most people think is reality and you are now coming to understand is merely a reflection or an appearance of truth and to turn away from those distractions and to use in altered states of deep relaxation the mind's eye the imagination the subconscious is to really access the truth of things, the everlasting, always substantial love, love truth, love is consciousness. Okay. Well, let's go to some questions and comments. If you haven't yet used the submission button on the web page in front of you, provided you're with us live here today, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, today is the 18th of January, 2009. We have a few callers, but mostly people on the web. And uh, this is the primary benefit of the, the webinar is that you can submit to me uh, questions or comments in that little box down at the bottom of the page. Just put your name and the city where you are at the bottom, even if you just want to say hi. Uh, love responding to your questions and, and your comments, too. So if you have comments or questions relevant to the topic today or even on another topic, maybe even as I said earlier, a suggestion for another program that we did. Uh, put it in that box. Put your name and your city below it. Click on the submission button and uh, then we'll be able to share with other people that you're out there and what you happen to be doing here today. So, well, first of all, right here on Maui, a friend of ours in Makawa, Renata. Hello, Renata. Nice to see you here. She says, how do we help others overcome their fear of commitment? 
very good question. Um, I think to answer the question, we we could even shorten it, Renata, to how do we help others overcome fear? Whether it's a fear of commitment or a fear of anything else. So if we shorten the sentence to how do we help others overcome fear, uh, I think probably the first response would have to be check into our own levels of stress and anxiety and fear. And that will help us empathize with the other person, right? Manage our own fears first. It's self-awareness and self-management first, and then empathy and influencing other people. Those are the four steps. Secondly, it occurs to me, Renata, that all fear is things unknown. All fear is ignorance. All fear is confusion. Um, our Finding Yourself in Paradise podcast is on this very topic. That will be out Wednesday, the one Steve and I do out of FocusedPassion.com. And this week we're, we're going to talk about the vicious cycle of fear and ignorance, or if you will, uh, confusion and anxiety. Uh, as I often say, fear is a frightening word and ignorance an insulting word, so... If that language is too strong, then we can just call it anxiety and confusion. But notice the dynamic. Fear of anything unknown is a vicious cycle. The fear creates more things unknown, which is scary. So fear of the unknown is a whirlwind. It's a tornado and a, a vicious cycle that builds and grows like, like feedback, like sticking a microphone into a PA speaker. And it won't be long before the sound of air in the background, the simple ambience, becomes a shriek as it goes around and around and around and around and around. And our mental and emotional nature does that around fear. So uh, we have to examine our own fears, and then we have to understand that the antidote to fear is knowledge and understanding. So uh, I would say the next thing we would do then to help somebody overcome a particular fear, as you're describing a fear of commitment, would be to help them understand what commitment means. Again, you start with yourself. Uh, what does that mean to me, to be committed to something? You know, that's a beautiful thing. But to somebody else, it could be a trap or a prison. Commitment to them is a cage they can't get out of. Show them. Uh, how commitment can be a freedom and uh, the, the benefit of having somebody else always there for you who is willing to make sacrifices and, and to help you and, and the, from a very deep heartfelt place uh, wants to share and care and understand um, people with fear of commitment are often like um, frightened animals and to domesticate a wild animal or to um, retrain an abused animal uh, is about making them feel safe. You take the fear out little by little. Uh, children learn this. They approach wild animals at first by running at them. <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, pretty soon the kid learns to be quiet and uh, to, to, to hunker down to make themselves small so they appear less threatening to move slowly, to offer food, 
um, I'm not saying that's the best way to build a, a human relationship, <laughs> you know. But uh, the, the the point is here to take the fear out of somebody. This is, you know, this is Christ's love your enemy. Stop frightening them. Even if you didn't do anything to cause the fear in the first place, even if they come to you with fear, uh, do what you can to to manifest your love, our love, in such a way as to take their fear away, help them to feel safe. And that means to watch this dynamic, this relationship of fear to things unknown, well, then the antidote would be to know, right? Understanding is the antidote to fear. Understanding commitment, you see, and modeling that for somebody. I think that's the best short answer I can give you. Thanks for that. Uh, Carolyn Lahabra is with us uh, today, as she almost always is, and she says hello from Lahabra. Hello, Carol. Also, John Bowles in Pittsburgh. He says he loves the webinar, thinks he gets better and better. I had a chat with John this week uh, on the side, and he was talking about how much he liked the uh, webinar we did last week on the Kabbalion and the uh, seven principles of hermetic philosophy as, uh, as uh, explored or explained in this book, the Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, by the three initiates. And uh, several others also sent me emails and left me voice messages saying they really liked that show. And so what it does is confirm my desire to get a little more esoteric with this webinar on Sunday, um, as we've done today even. You know, this is not a complex subject. The appearance versus the substance of things. It's it's not all that pithy, but it really does go beyond normal psychology or pop psych or personal development or self-improvement stuff to the whys and wherefores of things. And so the good news is I'm going to do more and more of that on this Sunday webinar leaving the personal development material for Steve and I to explore together in our conversation format. I think that's what's so wonderful about the Finding Yourself in Paradise program is that it's a conversation. It's very different than this. We describe it as ideally a compelling conversation with guided meditation. Uh, and we do the visualization exercises we do in this webinar every Sunday. Those go out on Wednesdays. And if you're not on board with that yet, be a contributor at any level, even even 99 cents a week, as little as 3.96 a month. You can send unlimited programs to as many people as you want. The Finding Yourself in Paradise program, as well as this program. And, yeah, you could do this free, just like you used to listen to KPFK, and you don't have to contribute anything. But if you're not yet a contributor, even at 99 cents a week, please get on board and uh, then start sending not only this webinar, but those Finding Yourself in Paradise podcasts, forwarding those as often as you want to as many people as you want for no additional charge. So giving people the solutions they're looking for, just the right program, 
we can do all these different programs. We have done, and we'll continue to do a variety of topics. But we don't know the people you know, and we don't know what they need or what they're looking for. So send just the right program to the people you love who would really need it. And you don't have to follow up, and you don't have to recruit anybody. Just give. Give. Give away what supports you. Care what you share, or share what you care about. <laughs> and care what you share about. So, one of the distinctions between, we're, we're going to uh, create an even greater difference between these two programs. The Sunday webinar, uh, you can listen to whether you're a contributor or not. You can forward this to as many friends as you want, whether you're a contributor or not. But hopefully you'll be a contributor, even at the basic level of, you know, less than $1 a week. That would be great. A few thousand people, and uh, we can start to pay for the bandwidth. Uh, uh, if, uh, the minute we hit 2,000 contributors at just $1 a week is the point where we're paying for the bandwidth. The basic services are covered. Okay. And then as you send more and more programs to more and more people, our bandwidth fees go up. But if we could just, you know, for now even break even, that'd be great. So hope you can help us with that. Focusedpassion.com. If you're listening on the web right now, live or to the replay, you should see a little button in the lower right that uh, will take you right to the website. Help us change the world. Send the programs that you think your friends really need. Them with that gadget. Send one to a friend in Tucson, outside Tucson, Arizona. Lorelai is with us again this week. She says, um, Seems like I move about every seven years, and maybe I'm in harmony with change. Great topic as always. Peace and love to you, and Doreen. Seven's a cool number, it really is. Seven's a great number because it has a middle. You know what seven is? Is a three above, a three below. And number four in the middle, you see the trinity, one, two, three, and then five, six, and seven, two trinities, the above and below. Remember last week we talked about the law of correspondence? So the divine trinity is reflected in a trinity of man, the mental, emotional, and physical in man, would be the lower correspondence of Father, Son, Mother, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then there's something in the middle. Well, what would be in the middle? between spirit and matter, between God and man, well, the soul. So that's why seven is so cool. And then three itself has that same thing, a middle, an above, a below, and then number two stands in the middle. There's an old, uh, I don't think I've ever told this here, maybe I have, an old mystical riddle about uh, what uh, comes third, stands as number two, and makes the three a one. Isn't that cool? I'll say it again. You may even want to write it down and ponder it. What comes third but stands as number two and makes the three a one? And the answer is your soul. Or the love truth that we've been talking about today is that which is truly substantial. It comes third. First, spirit has to create matter. And then consciousness the soul of things springs out of that, so it comes third, but it stands in the middle. 
between spirit and matter, and it's the harmonizing agent that makes these three into one whole thing. That's the mystery of the Trinity. Pretty cool. So you can do the same thing with your heart. You can make the three a one. You can you know, make whole your mental, physical, and emotional nature when you come from the higher heart. In Irvine, Robert is with us. Robert Fiegel says, Hi, Michael. I think the meltdown of the American financial system just might be a good thing. He says, Out of this will come a more fair, honest, and truly loving community. Have a great week. Sure hope you're right, Robert. Uh, it seems to me it can only get better. In Pasadena, Tom's with us. And Tom, hello. Nice to uh, see you. And uh, I don't think Tom would mind me mentioning that he was uh, in the archive on Focus Passion buying some of the old programs. And you can always do that also. As you build your collection, you have access to the backlist for only 99 cents. So I saw Tom was in there uh, cherry-picking some of those programs. So thank you for that, Tom. Appreciate you building your collection. He says, thanks for your help. Terrific show. Thank you, Tom. One of my ham radio friends down in Irvine, Robert says, Aloha, Michael, similar to the phrase, it is done unto you as you believe. He says, I like to say, you are what you create, in essence. In essence, you manifest or create the appearance from the substance of what you are. Yeah, there you go. There you go, that's exactly right. All right, let me hit the refresh button to see if we have anybody else here. And apparently not at this time. So hello to all of you guys, and if uh, any of the rest of you want to add a comment, you can do that, and I'll check before we wrap it up here today, but it's uh, about 11 after, so let's do our guided imagery exercise for the day, just take about 10 minutes here to uh, incorporate, to install the lesson for the day at a focused level of mind with great passion, that's what it's all about. And uh, then we'll uh, wrap it up here. So hopefully this is a good time for you. If you're listening to the replay or, or live today with us, find a comfortable place. Go ahead, take a minute to pump up the pillows and uh, get all settled in. Adjust your speakers on your computer. By the way, we're working on the volume issue also. Some people say it's not very loud. And uh, if you don't have powered speakers and you're listening to your internal speakers, this may not be very loud. I found a set of powered speakers for $15 at Office Max about a year ago. They work just fine. You don't need to buy the $100 set. You can spend lots of money on powered speakers. But we're going to work on raising the volume on this end. I think we have a, a way to do that. So settle in. Get comfortable. Those of you who may be listening on the telephone, use your headset. Buy a headset. Even a cordless phone. Get a headset for it. Sit back and relax. With your eyes closed, turning away from the appearance of things. And if you look at what you see with your eyes closed, well, you don't see much of anything. 
it might seem to be sort of black or shady in there, but versus other things, you may get a sense of color and shape. Because the brain, the, the the brain is active, and the brain is firing. And with a little imagination, you can begin to visualize. For example, I want you to imagine a bright yellow triangle. And notice the orientation. If you say to most people, with your eyes closed, relaxing, just settling in, feel safe, take another slow, deep breath. Ah, feel the letting go. And again, just imagine a bright yellow triangle. Now, some of you will get a very vivid image of a bright yellow triangle. And some of you will just sort of have a sense of what a bright yellow triangle would look like if you could see it. Some of you might be able to hear what it would sound like if you hit the triangle with a stick. doesn't really matter, that's the point. We have no way of knowing, even with CAT scans and MRIs, whether someone who says they visually can see something very clearly, that they're good at visualization, whether they're actually better at it than somebody who reports, I just can't do it. So we have no idea. So just whether you think you're good at this or not, just pretend, make it up. The feeling you're making it up, the feeling you're pretending to see a yellow triangle is exactly right. Notice the orientation. Most people would put the base at the bottom and the point at the top, even if it's an equilateral triangle. But imagine it's a traffic sign and it says yield on it. You might have to rotate that bright yellow triangle so that the point is down and the broad base, one of those three sides, is horizontal at the top. Because now it's a traffic sign. Still a bright yellow triangle, but it's pointing down, and it, in big black letters, it says "yield" right there on the sign. It sort of reminds me of other traffic signs, like I could see a stop sign right now. There it is. How many sides does it have? Well, let's see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? And it's red, and it says "stop." not black letters, I'm seeing white letters now that say stop and a red octagon it's just a stop sign but imagine our ability to see such things in fact in a more dynamic way you can imagine yourself driving a car you can imagine your hands on the wheel feel your feet on the pedal feel the very gentle, slight vibration of the car moving as you come to the stop sign and apply the brakes. Yield appropriately, look in all directions, and begin to move forward through the intersection. And You're driving the car, looking out the window, and the next 
cross street has a yield sign. There it is, that big yellow triangle. And the feeling you're making all of this up is exactly right. Now I'd like you to imagine a cup of hot chocolate in a broken old mug. Oh, it's not cracked because it would leak then, but maybe it's got a chip on the corner. And maybe some of the the paint that had been glazed onto the outside of the mug or the cup is sort of worn off by too many trips through the dishwasher. Back as you bring the cup of hot chocolate to your lips, maybe maybe your lips even feel that the edge of the cup has been chipped. But then you taste the hot chocolate. It's not too hot. In fact, the great thing about imagining is it can be just hot enough, just right. Presuming you really like hot chocolate. Maybe you like marshmallows in yours. And that's what we're really after, is the hot chocolate. Because it tastes good, and it's sweet, and it's warm. And you can even feel it going down. I bet you could even imagine how that hot chocolate feels at just the perfect temperature. Hot enough, but not too hot. As it moves across your tongue and down your throat, my goodness, you can feel it warming you as it moves gently through the esophagus. And I'm sorry, that would be the throat, wouldn't it? <laughs> down into the tummy, not the lungs. Ah, tastes really good. That's what we're after, the sweetness of life. The part that feels good. I remember in the 60s and 70s, mainstream media would criticize the baby boomer generation and especially the hippies as hedonist, as hedonistic. We were the me generation, so selfish that all we cared about was what feels good, and if it feels good, do it. I remember somebody even calling my talk show and saying, well, what if it feels good to kill somebody? Then I should be able to do that. What if it feels good to steal their stuff? The truth is it doesn't. You might say, well, if I robbed a bank and got away with it, it would feel good to have all that money. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Some part of you might think you got away with something. But some part of you would always feel bad. Some part of you would always be conflicted. Consider a lie detector. Why does it detect stress and tension in the body when you lie? Anybody that lies except for the most se severe sociopath or psychopath that doesn't know right from wrong, anybody else, no matter how dedicated to evil, no matter how caught up they may be in the appearance of things, money, power, sex, what they really want is love and truth. They just may not know it. What they want is something that lasts. 
mean, in our story about the chocolate in the broken cup, the allegory here is that the chocolate lasts forever. It doesn't. It's a physical thing, too. And so eventually you finish the hot chocolate and put down the cup. But the feel-good that we really want is not simply the sweetness or the sense of fulfillment that we get from eating and drinking hot chocolate, alcohol, good wines, delicious foods, but those things don't last. The sweetness of those things don't last either. The sweetness, the feel-good that we really want, that really lasts, is love, is truth. And it's this love that us free. It's this truth, love, truth, the wisdom of the ages. It's a sense of connection to all things. It's a harmony that allows us to see our source, that from which we come in all things. To be able to get the bigger picture to see something eternal and infinite and to say I am that I am well I am this I am I am my body and I am my health and I am what I say to other people and I am what I think about other people and I am living in the world but I can be more than this live in it but not of it I am more than this would Christ say, my kingdom is not of this world? And where then is that kingdom? Well, it's inside you, he said. Not up there. It's not up there. It's inside you. Most likely to be experienced in states much like this, with your eyes closed without the distraction of sense and sensation. The physical appearance of things becomes part of all that is, but only a, trans, a transient part of all that is. There's more here. You can feel it. You can experience the longing the appetite that you have for something real. Can you feel it? Do you have the hunger or the thirst for something real, something true, something honest, something that lasts in your life? Because the good news is you don't have to find that. You just have to have a sense that your longing for it is there and then follow that heartfelt longing and put your feet upon that path and begin the adventure the journey of unfoldment of self-discovery as you approach your source and then begin to see that source in all things around you for the path narrows as you move onward, inward deeper toward the center, upward toward the highest point 
These are just models for going from time and space to the eternal and the infinite. Ponder it. Feel the longing, the appetite, the appetite, the 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 urge or desire for something real, for the truth in all things, the relative truth and the absolute truth as well. And simply commit to once a day spending ten minutes coming in touch with that appetite, with that capital D desire, not desire for physical things, but desire to know the truth, to know the substance, to know the real meaning and value of things, and use these kinds of guided imagery techniques, even if it's simply visualizing a beautiful paradise in which you set a safe place to explore the unlimited, unbounded frontiers within us. Find that longing, that appetite, and honor it, and walk that path. Because it is the journey. You need a destination in order to begin the journey, but it's not about the end result. It's all about moving in that direction. And tell yourself how easily you can remember this, take a nice, slow, deep breath. And as you exhale... Open your eyes wide awake and alert back in the room, feeling rested and refreshed, feeling really good. And uh, again, tell yourself, I don't need an hour to meditate, to fall into some trance in which I'm not aware. I could take three minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes once a day just to reflect. Even if you open your eyes, just to fix your gaze, to lower the stimulus. Makes a difference, really does. And never, ever, ever give up that longing for what, what is true, what is real, what is substantial. Doesn't mean you spend your whole life ignoring or denying the appearance of things. That, to most people, is their whole reality. We've got to live in the world. But to know that there's more, that's all I would ask. Honor that. It's already built in. Your appetite is there. <laughs> Just like the Sagioli says, like the flower turning to the sun, right? Not only for sustenance, but to seek its source. Do the same thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. Forward these to your friends as well. And if you're not yet on board as a contributor for as little as a dollar a week, 99 cents, Get over to Focus Passion and start sending those programs to as many people as you can. Just the right program to just the right person, somebody that you know who could really benefit from these. And in that way, we change the world. Changing the world begins with you. FocusedPassion.com. Check it out. Tell your friends about it just by forwarding a program to them. It's really cool. People that do it say they love it. You have to do it two or three times to really get it, and then you're going to love it. Also, I'd like to hear from you. Use my email, mb at theagelesswisdom.com, or write to me at info at focusedpassion.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Join us next Sunday. Be sure and get the newsletter, and uh, stay, stay tuned. <laughs>
okay? Because we have lots of great stuff to go. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Maui, Hawaii, this is Michael Benner. Aloha.